today alongside me is a special guest because as I've been doing this podcast, it's been mainly with people in America. And Jacob Wolke from Wolke Farms is down in Australia, and I've been following him for some time. So it's it's awesome to to talk and, and finally hear your story. So thank you for joining. Yeah, pleasure. Thanks for having me, Ron. So I guess to get started, yeah, because um, I know yours is relatively new, correct, Wolke Farm? Yeah, my wife and I got into it in 2019 was when we sort of started taking a keen interest in you know, where our food came from and we were dissatisfied with local food systems, which is which is another whole interesting thing that I've you know I've almost come full circle on it. You know, I I wanted grass fed beef that hadn't been uh, drenched and medicated, and you know I had some requirements that I was looking for for food for my family, and I couldn't find it uh, anywhere. I went to the local butchers, I went to the local farmers markets, I did a bit of research online to find someone local, couldn't find it anywhere. So started thought I'd do it myself. And now that I'm, you know, four years into doing it, I've met so many fantastic farmers at scale that do, you know, a beautiful product. Uh, but there was just there was never a conduit to actually meet them. You know, if if I could have actually met one of those farmers and bought the product for myself, I probably would have never started farming. So, and I really enjoy it. So on one hand, I'm I'm glad I could never find them. But you know, I used to talk about how hard this food was to source it. And in some cases, that's true, but there is actually an abundance of amazing food out there. But these producers, unfortunately, are just dumping their stuff into commodity markets because there's no uh, easy way to get it out there. Hmm. All right. So there's actually two really awesome pieces that I'd want to go with. So the first one, just going back to before you even started, what did that look like whenever you, you wanted to make that decision to finally start a, a, a farm and... Yeah, did you just have a game plan or did you already have land and you just kind of dove in? What did that look like? Yeah, sure. So I've been, uh, like my family, we're merchants, we're bricks and mortar retail and have been here in Australia for three generations selling belt buckles and belly button rings, basketball cards, CDs, DVDs, T-shirts, Levi jeans, you know, whatever we could. Like we've got a saying in our family, all we care about is can we buy it for $1 and sell it for two? You know, we'll, we'll sell carpet, but it doesn't matter. And when I started becoming interested in, in food uh, and where my food came from and how it was produced, and I, you know, I, I found guys like Justin Rhodes and, and Joel Salatin and these people on, online, these personalities that made it so romantic and wholesome and uh, not only was the actual food production side of it really important to me, but seeing those sorts of personalities and how they took their family along for the journey and, you know, the, the sort of social impacts that came out of that, I just thought this is oh, Jacob, awesome. You know, really I, I want to be involved with that. Uh, and my father owned, uh, owns a 100-acre property just 10 minutes out of town. Uh, and, you know, it's more of a hobby block than anything in this part of the world. 100 acres is a is a postage stamp size of a property. Uh, so dad would normally just buy 40 steers and background them on the farm for most of the season and then sell them off into the commodity market and use them to make some pocket money and keep the grass down. And I said to dad, you know, could I, could I put 20 chickens in a caravan? So I stole all my dad's chickens. He used to have a little chook shed where he'd grow all his own eggs, but I, I uh, acquired his chickens and I put them in a literally a caravan with a solid floor, still had you know, everything in it. And I made some little perches and I'd let them out every day and I'd muck it out, fill the bottom up with straw. And you know, it took me a while to, uh, it, was a, it took me 
hours and hours to move it whenever I wanted to move it every couple of days. And we got 20 Hereford heifers. We got 20 head of cattle. And I started moving them around with polywire. And the idea was to get eggs for my wife and I and our new son, Otto. And at the end of raising these heifers, uh, we would process one to put in the freezer and the rest we'd sell off into the market. And we processed one and gave some to friends and family. And people were like, this is actually really great beef, Jake. And I thought, you know, it didn't take me long to crunch the numbers and think, well, if I'm processing, doing all this effort and doing one, I may as well do two and cover my costs and sell some to my friends. And, uh, you know, the rest is history. I got really swept up in it. You know, like I said, we've been merchants for a long time, but there's something really, uh, really engaging about actually producing and not just selling that I'm, I'm really enjoying. And it sort of got to the point now where, you know, arrogantly, it almost feels like a little bit of a calling because I've met so many people in the last four years that have uh, health issues that are being uh, mitigated and healed and fixed and repaired because of their environment and their inputs. And a lot of those inputs are what I'm growing for them. You know, it's, it's a different, it's a different feeling than selling someone a bicycle. You know, I had one customer recently that during her pregnancy, she had violent uh, morning sickness. I can't remember the phrase for it, but it was clinically diagnosed as this really violent morning sickness. And the only thing she could eat without violently throwing up was my beef raw. So she would come in start of the wow. week and, and stock up her fridge with all my beef and she'd go, she couldn't even eat it cooked. She had to eat my beef raw. And she's like, thank you so much for producing this because without this, I'd just be vomiting all the time and I wouldn't be able to eat and my baby wouldn't be growing properly. I, you know, that's a, you know, I've sold some bicycles to people that are happy about it, but it's a different thing. Yeah. And I'm sure, especially after those nights and days to where you work in extra hours, there's, I mean, with just working on the farm, there's just so much unpredictability that happens that you have to take care of. And so I know in those moments, whenever you hear hear those stories, that it makes it all that worth, much more worth it too. Yeah, definitely. And then I guess to continue on to that story too. So you started with the heifers and then adding in the chickens, because I know now you've got pigs, you've got a much larger operation. Um, yeah, if you could just go in the chronological order of how you got to where you're at now, because I also see that. I think you're in your, your butcher shop too right now. Yeah, I'm in the butchery right now. So it, my, my family, I'm in partnership with my parents. We own a bicycle store in town here. And inside the bicycle shop is a cafe that's open seven days a week and does the breakfast lunch menu, um, like a cooked breakfast. And when I, when I was starting to sell a little bit of beef on the farm uh, or through the farm business, I thought, you know, I could get some more chickens because chickens just look like a no-brainer. Watching Salatin and the rest of them, I thought I could go and get a thousand chickens and lay all the eggs for our own cafe and I'd have a customer that'd buy, you know, I think we at that stage we're probably going through seven or eight boxes of eggs a week, which is boxes 15 dozen, 180 eggs. So we're going through maybe, you know, 800 eggs a week or something like that. So I built the, uh, the, the next thing I did after those first few chickens and then the cattle was I... Uh, Built a big X-wing and filled it up with chooks and got my egg license, egg stamp. You know, there's obviously all these regulatory hoops you have to jump through, uh, which is the absolute worst part of the job. Started selling eggs and, you know, interestingly, there's been so many local pasture-raised egg producers start and finish within the last four years. Like they started after me and they've already thrown the towel in because of 
It looks so easy on the back of an envelope. You know, buy a chicken for 20 bucks, feed it 40 grams of feed a day, which costs you 80 cents a kilo or, you know, whatever it is, and you get an egg and you can sell it for a dollar. Like, it, it makes so much sense. It's so easy and, and you know, no one can do it uh, long term. So I did the chickens and then obviously we kept increasing cattle as needed. Uh, I bought a couple of pigs. I put two pig, two or three pigs in the dam paddock. We weren't rotating them. We weren't feeding them grain or just feeding them house scraps. You know, I, I, I went to an orchard and uh, crawled around on the floor uh, with four wheelie bins and filled up the wheelie bins with all the rotten apples and I brought them back and fed them to my pigs. And these pigs were just for home use because I was, we were eating a bit of pork at home. I was trying to learn how to cook a couple meals because I thought, you know, well, my wife's got a baby at home. I need to be able to, uh, earn, earn, you know, do a chop a turn in and cook a meal if I need to. And I'm not a great cook. My wife's amazing. And I thought, oh, I'm going to make pork belly my dish. And every time I cooked pork belly, we both felt crook. <laughs> and we figured out, we got, we just figured out it wasn't uh, the cooking because I could eat, I could cook other dishes and not poison us. But the pork gave us stomach cramps and indigestion and we felt really bogged down afterwards. It wasn't like eating beef. We just felt really light um, and, you know, energized and ready to go. The pork really brought us down. And we raised these pigs in a pretty unsophisticated way and we ate them and we felt great afterwards. And we thought, you know, this is when it really started clicking with me about uh, different animal production systems, different breeds, uh, different inputs. And so then we got into pigs at the moment. Now I've got about 120 pigs on the farm right now. We're, we're hoping to process somewhere between 300 and 350 pigs this calendar year. I got into sheep uh, purely because the market bullied me into it. Um, you know, the sheep is very popular protein in Australia and they're, they're, su they're generally suited quite well to our climate. So just as I didn't want sheep, I didn't want to get into sheep. Uh, but I kept getting asked, when you're doing lamb, when you're doing lamb, and then I ran the economics on sheep, and I think sheep absolutely spank cattle on a on a balance sheet. So we got into sheep. We do bees. You know, uh, we've got we've got about 25 beehives on the farm for honey. We raise broiler meat chickens. You know, they all sort of got added on and bolted on. So at the moment, we're leasing uh, three different properties that are 100 acres each. Uh, the home farm is where we have all the pigs, all the broilers, all the layers, and um, and you know, one of our mobs of cattle and the flock of sheep. And then the two lease properties both have mobs of cattle that we're backgrounding. You know, one's got cows that are gestating at the moment. Another one's got our wieners that we grow out for slaughter. And then uh, my wife and I, we haven't announced this at all, so this will be a uh, an exclusive for your podcast. But we've just. Uh, gone unconditional on a farm purchase and we've we've purchased 150 acres uh about half an hour north of Aubrey. so we'll be moving up there in about a month with our family i've got three young kids now under six and we'll be moving up there because at the moment like we lease all these properties but we live in town so i'm gonna go up there and get some more cattle get some more sheep and 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 scale the business a bit further so you you've really um expanded this farm and you mentioned how there are a lot of folks that started after you started and already stopped what were the things that you did differently or was it a, a just a mental shift because i know also on your website you've had the five pillars of wolkie farm i didn't know if yeah just having that certain system in place what were the differences that you think look i think i think the main difference as to why people have uh quit before we have comes down to two things uh one's resource access 
Um, you know, I think people have come in on a shoestring budget and realized that it doesn't matter really what your business is, but you need capital, you need equity, you need cash flow, you know, any, any, any business, you can't really start from nothing. You're not going to pull a salary out of a business to pay your, to pay yourself keep for a business you're starting with nothing with. Um, so I've probably come in a little bit, uh, I wasn't as naive in that sense, having been in business for a while. And uh, I, I, I underestimated how much I'd have to put in. I never thought I'd have to buy a butchery. You know, when I started the farm business, I put about $100,000 into it and I bought, you know, my first few cattle and, and a few pigs and a, and a, uh, a built an egg mobile and I got a silo and I bought a buggy and, you know, I was about 100 grand in and the farm was ticking along just fine. Uh, on the small scale it was. It wasn't having to produce an income for me because I've got other businesses in town paying my way. Uh, but, you know, I was able to employ staff and get going. And then very, very soon it was apparent that the absolute bottleneck was processing, actually getting my animals butchered. Because here in Australia, you send your animal off to a state-certified abattoir for slaughter, but the, the, the slaughterhouses don't do any cut-up for you. It has to come back to a local butcher, local boning room, and they do your cut-up for you. And the butchers that I was using, like one body of beef a month, and they didn't want to do any more than that. Uh, and I, I knew it was going to be a mugs game, trying to use multiple different butchers to try to keep throughput coming through. And it was my biggest cost. You know, I, I could buy a steer, uh, run it on the farm for 12 months to finish it, uh, send it for slaughter, and you could accumulate all those costs together. And the butchering at the local butcher was still the biggest part of the cost. Even after the acquisition of the animal, the cost of running it, the labour, the minerals, the lease land, the the, the the slaughter fee, everything, the butchering costs more. So we purchased the uh, butchery, which is you know it's another few hundred thousand dollars that we um, tipped in, and we couldn't run our business without it. So I think you know one reason people fail is they're undercapitalized, and the other reason is they're just not willing to put the hours in and work hard enough. You know, there's there's I helped a few people, you know, they wanted a bit of advice getting their, their little egg business going. And then two, three months later, they're messaging me going, oh, you got no idea how much work it is. I'm thinking like, you've got 200 chooks. Like if it's, if it's taking you more than half an hour a day, you're doing, you, your systems suck. And, and, you know, you're not going to get any sympathy from me about having to work hard. It's just welcome to the real world. I think a lot of people, you know, they see some Instagram reels and it's, it's, it's women in dresses running through long grass and, um, everything is going to be beautiful when, when they've got chickens on their um, property. And the reality is, whether it's uh, below freezing outside or 45 degrees and you feel like your skin's going to melt off your face, you've got to go and service your animals. You know, there's, 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 there's labor that's required. You know, I'm regularly, I regularly go home, eat dinner, kiss the kids on the head, come back to the butchery and work till 10 o'clock at night because we've got throughput that demands it. So, uh, you know, there's skills and labor shortage here at the moment. So I think, you know, it's an equity problem. It's a cash equity and it's a labor equity problem as to why people fail. So for the labor equity too, because that's a huge issue in America. Um, even the farm I worked on, they were severely understaffed. And uh, obviously that means you have to pick up all the work. And with just the advancement of technology and how we grew up now to have the sense of going to college and then moving to a bigger city and working a tech job or now social media and TikTok and YouTube and all that has just exploded to where that's what a lot of people want to do. I'm curious if that's the similar culture too, to where it's hard to find help, especially from uh, the younger audiences, whether it be my generation or the, the one after that. Yeah, look, I've, I've actually 
had no issues attracting labor. You know, I've got multiple different businesses and, you know, trying to find a bike mechanic really hard, trying to find a chef really hard, trying to find a salesperson for the bike shop really difficult, trying to find a butcher really difficult. But on the farm, uh, we actually get canvassed for work all the time because people want to get involved, uh, come and upskill on the farm, see what see what we're doing and, you know, get that experience under their belt for their, their, their own future plans or, or whatever it is. The last few months in Australia, the labor's been very hard across the board. Now, even on the farm, it's been a little bit more challenging. Uh, but generally, it's not too bad. And I think that's one thing that probably sets me apart from a lot of other startups is I hired staff straight away and you know, identified very early on that farming's um, the, the easy bit, basically. And you know that'll be to the disgust of every farmer out there. And there's, there's, there's no doubt that... F- that farming isn't easy. You know, you're dealing with a lot of moving parts. You've got live animals. You've got, in Australia, the, the weather is all over the place. Like we're basically, we came out of 10 years of drought, went into three years of flood and we're already in drought again. You know, it's, it's just all over the place. We don't have steady seasons. Uh, but if I want to grow 1,000 two kilo chickens, or if I want to finish off uh, 50 bodies of beef that are 280 kilos on the hook, I can do it. Uh, actually facilitating the processing and then finding customers to purchase it and then getting the meat to those customers so so that the, the processing the sales and the freight logistics are super painful and I and a, and a lot harder burdens a lot harder challenges so I identified that early on and staffed up and set up some systems on the farm put people on the farm to you know manage uh, daily chores and I got myself in the boning room. I spend a lot of my time here in the butchery, uh, trying to massage those other, you know, parts of the business that just seem to be a lot bigger barriers. So outside of hiring immediately at the beginning, because I mean, how I found you is through Twitter and just seeing everything that you share. That's just been so great. And also on your Instagram and TikTok, has that attracted others to want to visit and help and experience your farm as well? Because in terms of just trying to find avenues to incentivize others to even just visiting a farm. Uh, yeah, just try, I'm just curious to hear what that's been like since really sharing everything on social media. I think like, you know, social media is our, uh, it's our marketing uh, for the farm and we don't, we don't treat it contentiously. Like there's no plan. Our whole thing's just, just document, you know, if a sheep dies in the paddock and I slaughter it, hang it in a tree, cut it up for dog meat, I put a photo up and I tell people, bit of a story about what's going on you know we're we're very transparent we share our wins and our losses and there's no there's no plan there's there's no funding it's just you know if i don't post much it's only because i'm super busy when i'm posting heaps i've probably got a bit more time up our sleeve so the the slow news days people are probably missing out on more because there's probably more going on but it's definitely uh you know brought all of our customers to us and it's definitely attracted uh, the majority of the workforce um, we have some people on the farm now and then that come along for work experience and they all find me through social media. I've actually been blown away with Twitter because I only uh, started tweeting about a year ago just when um, Elon purchased it. I never was on Twitter at all. And then Elon bought it and I thought, you know, I've, I've got to be uh, involved now because you know, he, he's, he's a good dude. I want to get in his corner. And, uh, you know... Prior to that, my other social medias for the farm, Instagram, Facebook had, had three years of history on them and, and Twitter overtook all the followers in a few months, uh, which was, you know, and, and the actual 
connection part of Twitter has really blown me away, networking with people. But yeah, you know, it's, it's super important for what we do because we don't have the budget or the uh, sophistication to launch uh, media campaigns and, and um, you know, all, all these sorts of things. So just being able to reach people directly through sharing our stories, vital. I agree. And on the topic of just sharing your stories too, can you expand on uh, the, the Wilkie Farm flywheel? And, and yeah, just each portion of that and it's, and just the importance of each one that you, that, cause they seem like it's your, your key pillars of. Yeah, that's right. Go ahead. There's a bit of a story behind this, but you know, people can find the story in, in, in any other podcast and it's a bit long winded. So I won't, I won't um, drag it all up again, but essentially I was nominated for um, young business leader of the year, a few years ago. And before I had the farm business, when I was just a bike shop and I, entered myself and I lost the, I didn't win. And the reason I didn't win was because they said my mission statement, my business statement for the shop wasn't strong enough. And we didn't have a business statement uh, because we sell bikes. There was, there's no, you know, there's no altruistic um, environmental community conscience. Like we're just trying to make money selling bikes. Um, and so I made one up for the sake of the application and the feedback I got was, you know, great business, everything, culture in the workplace is good, all this sort of stuff, but your mission statement sucks. And, and why I bring that up is the farm's got a really uh, strong uh, mission statement, which which we describe as our five pillars of production or our uh, flywheel of production. And it wasn't, you know, the, the analogy I'm trying to give, I guess, is it wasn't created. It wasn't contrived. We didn't sit down and, and go, Radio Wolpe Farm needs a mission statement. So everyone put their thinking cap on. This has to, it has to appeal to this type of consumer and it, and it, and it has to be marketable. But this literally just came out of hours in the paddock, laboring with my farm hands, things going wrong, um, and then staff needing to be able to self-author how they handle those circumstances without, like, I don't like, I don't like my phone uh, ringing with my staff calling me every 15 minutes asking for permission or guidance on medial tasks, which used to be my life. I remember being in Taiwan at a trade show for the bike shop many years ago. And I got a phone call from my manager that a customer wanted to return a pair of cycling gloves, you know, $35 gloves because the stitching had pulled. Uh, but it was, you know, they, they'd owned them over a month and they were clearly used. And I'm like, why am I being bothered about the glove exchange? Like just fix the customer. Yeah. Like, so, um, and, and I didn't want, like, our lease block, some of them are out of phone reception. So if they go down there and there's a cow stuck in a fence or there's a cow on the road or there's a cow with a stuck calf or whatever it might be, you know, they need to have a, they need to uh, know and, and intimately the values of the farm so that they can, you know, execute what needs to happen without having to drive half an hour back to reception to ask me permission or ask me guidance. So with that long-winded intro, the five pillars of production, we call it a flywheel because um, I believe they all feed into each other and the, and the farm gains momentum out of it. The first one's animal welfare. So if there's something wrong on the farm and the staff need to make a decision, the very first thing they need to uh, take into context is the welfare of the animal. So don't think about Jake's bottom line. Uh, don't think about, you know, what's, if I do this in this situation, how's that going to affect the meat later on down the, down the track? You know, don't, Think about the environment. It's not the environment at the moment. We've got an animal that's suffering or in trouble or, or, or you know, on the, on the road or whatever. So think about the welfare of the environment. And for us, welfare, people have this idea that 
you know, they're giving great welfare to their pet dog because they keep a big bowl of kibble filled up all the time. And the poor dog's diabetic, morbidly obese, walking around with its stomach dragging on the ground because it's so fat from eating these, you know, ultra-processed carbohydrate-based kibbles. And these people are thinking that they're showing all this love to their dog uh, by indulging its gluttony. And it's just simply not welfare. They're not respecting the nature of the animal. So welfare for us is species appropriate. So you need to take into account what the animal is, where it came from, and, and where is it now. So an example of that, uh, let's say pigs. You know, pigs are forest-dwelling animals um, from Europe. And so cooler climate, heaps of shade, omnivorous, social. But our pig production in the West, they're in sheds. They only ever see sunshine and fresh air the day they're on the truck when they're going to slaughter, the very last day of their life. They've got their teeth ground out. They've got their tails cut off because they're so bored and understimulated that they'll eat each other um, if, they're, if they're kept intact like that. There's no natural matings. It's all artificial insemination. They're not social across age groups. They're just social in their uniform lots. Um, and I just I think that it's just against everything that you know contextual welfare should be. So our pigs are outside. They're in the dirt. Um, they're wallowing, they're rooting around in the soil. Uh, there's different age groups mixed together, all these sorts of things. But then we also have to think about where they come from. They came from a cooler climate with lots of shade. So we build structures, we plant trees, um, we put out sprinklers for them on hot days to try to you know, mitigate that. So when we say animal welfare, it's about what is the animal's natural expression? Where did it come from? Where is it now? And understanding that umbrella, you know, doing the best you can to meet that animal's needs. Uh, the, the, the second one, is environmental backbone and so we do actually really care about our environment uh we are environmentalists we we love the outdoors the the fertility in the soil is our is our bank balance it's our it's our next season's protein and and we need to do everything we can to to you know jealously guard the assets of our farm uh, but i actually think you know, looking after the environment's really simple. If you look after animals in the context of their natural expression, the environment's fine. So, you know, that's that's respecting, you know, one, one great example is having ruminant herbivores on your farm that are moving in their grazing cells all the time, whether you want to call it regenerative grazing or cell grazing or holistic plant grazing, whatever you want, mimicking migratory patterns, which these animals have been doing forever versus a feedlot where they're eating corn. You know, one's got a great environmental output, sequesters carbon, builds fertility, has healthy animals. And the other one is crap environmental output. You, you know, you've got synthetically grown crops, you're burning all the diesel to grow the crops, you, you're trucking the crops to the feedlot, you've got all the cows crapping in one spot, so you've got to have an effluent management plan, you've got to burn more diesel and labour to get rid of the manure out of the feedlot, you know, the animals are getting sick, um, et cetera, et cetera. So they're being fed sub-therapeutic antibiotics, you know, yada, yada, yada. But that whole environmental uh, catastrophe can be mitigated if you respect the natural expression of the ruminant herbivore and you keep them moving. So it's actually, it's not an environmental plan. It's just respecting the animal and the environment responds brilliantly because shock horror, animals are part of the environment and animals are the beginning of the fertility cycle. Uh, so, so that's why it's a flywheel. If you look after the animal, welfare number one, the environment's a default. It's, you know, enhancing environment is a byproduct of, of contextual animal welfare. 
Step number three is we want to create healing food for our community. So just through the, uh, and you know, I used to think maybe we're going to say nutrient dense food. Maybe we're going to say quality food. It's like, no, nah, grow old pear. I believe our food heals people. And you know, the, the plural of anecdotes is data. And we don't have great data on this because no one, you know, I don't know. I can't do everything. You know, I welcome anyone that wants to come uh, any university or, or any medical group that wants to come and, you know, nutritionally test our food, do studies on consumers and their health. You know, I'm sure we could put people and produce together to make that happen. But, you know, I've got my cards full and I can't do everything. But all I know is I'll get a lot of anecdotes. And to me, a lot of anecdotes is as good as data because it's the collective noun version of it. And I hear all the time about how much people, how much better people feel. They're not throwing up anymore. They don't have indigestion anymore. They've lost weight. They don't have eczema. The amount of women that come to me and say that their kids are allergic to eggs and they get eczema, skin rash, until they eat our eggs and then there's no problems and the skin rash goes away just blows my mind. So I don't know why. I just know it happens. And so we want yeah. to produce that for our community. And I believe if you look after the animal in context to its natural expression, You've got an environmental backbone and, you, and you're you know, building the commons on your farm. And that includes not using herbicides and pesticides and fungicides. You know, we're an organic-based farm. That the quality food is, again, it's a byproduct of that system. Number four is we want to build community. So we're super transparent through social media. We do a lot of uh, community days on the farm, farm tours, spring fairs, uh, you know, uh, keynote sessions. We're, we're hoping in the future to be able to facilitate weddings and all sorts of things on our new property. Uh, so we want to be a socially active farm uh, that's transparent and open. And then number five is we want to make profit. You know, after we've done everything else and left nothing on the table, we've done everything to the best of our ability. We price our produce to give ourselves uh, the profit we need to not only be viable, to but to be able to bankroll becoming uh, larger and scaling. And, you know, and then the whole thing repeats. Awesome. That was really great. Thank you for sharing. And... I was really interesting because I was vegan for two and a half years and I noticed this trend with just the huge push of plant-based and pinning animal agriculture on climate change. It's just really interesting. Just all, all the terminology is just tossed around for people that have never even worked on a farm, have never really talked to farmers or ranchers because it's clear as day how much folks like you care about everything you're doing the fact even just going back to the first point of that wheel taking out profits and and all of that you really thinking about the actual health of the animal ensuring that they have everything they need um yeah that's just very telling and that's why any listeners that have vegan friends or whatnot i think just that whole entire clip would just be great to share because this is very common from the, a lot of the folks that i talk to and I've worked with, they truly care about the animals and the land that they steward. Uh, I mean, you're, you're sacrificing so much. And then at the end of the day, yes, you need a profit, but that's just because without that, then this goes under and you're not providing the food and, and then the community suffers from all of that. Um, well, you know, that's, so it, yeah, that's, that's another sort of really um, great. And thank you for sharing. And then on the top. Well, I'll, you know, I was just no, going to touch go on Ryan, um, that we're, we're on a, unapologetically pro-profit you know people feel like they need you to should. justify like i watch i watch re regenerative farmers and direct-to-market farmers 
get on their soapbox and, and explain why their eggs cost the way they are and say, look, we're not actually making that much money. We're just scraping by. We're just trying to produce food for you and stuff. And, you know, that's a nonsense. If, if you should be, like, making money, you should be, you know, setting your family up. I don't, I don't want to scrape by. I want to build an empire. I, I want to be wealthy. I'm not interested in subsistence farming. Um, you know, and part of that is not gouging your customers for price. I'm working really hard at the moment. Like my one of my goals in Australia is to be the best value direct to market uh, retail producer. I don't like I, I joke all the time that our food is air quotes expensive. There's a certain price tag that comes along with it, but all my effort is is put towards uh, pushing the price down so I can sell more of it and you know make more money through volume and scale. Um, you know. A lot of people feel like they need to apologize for that and i just think that that's um it's, it's a socialist agenda the fact that we need to you know apologize for creating value why would you apologize for creating value especially whenever again it goes back to we die without food so this is the most important uh aspect of civilization essentially but on the topic because you're mentioning to uh just direct to, to market but then also how going back to searching for grass fed and you and you realize a lot of them were just going with the commodities market so i guess can you just shed light upon yeah just the commodities market and why a lot of those farms were doing that versus what you're doing and the, the direct to, to market and the challenges that you face with all of that yeah well there's, there's heaps of reasons why ryan you know pick your poison really like a lot of farmers sell into the commodity market because it's there because they've always been doing it uh, because they might have 500 weaner calves for their season and that's their crop and they can just get rid of them on one day and not have to worry about it again. Um, you know, trying to direct market that amount of uh, produce is a, is a huge undertaking. They would, they, would, they would need their own boning room. They need multiple butchers. And, you know, I, I encourage these people to have a look at it. And, uh, you know, I always tell people, you don't have to start with your whole herd. Just do, just set yourself a goal to do five this year. But the, the reality is for a farmer who was, let's say, you know, let, let's say they're producing 500 wiener calves a year, the effort to put into direct marketing um, five of them would, would be a huge amount of effort compared to the ROI. Like it'd be a real labor of love. And, you know, I'll, I'll defend that. I think it's worth it. If you, can, if you can do five the first year, learn a few lessons, do 25 the next year and 50 the next year and, you know, grow into that enterprise. I think you know over time you, you're building real resiliency um, into your business, but a lot of these people are, don't they don't want to deal with the public. That's why they're farmers. They want to be out in the paddock with the cattle. Uh, maybe they don't have the capital. Uh, they, they don't have the time. They don't see they don't see the value in it. So you know the industry, for better or worse, is is set up how it is, and a lot of people just don't have the inclination to go against it. But uh, at the same time. You know, they're very happy to complain when the market crashes. Last year in Australia was record all-time highs. The price of beef and lamb at, over the hook was uh, extraordinarily high. I recall many farms saying, we're being paid too much. This isn't sustainable. We shouldn't be getting this much for our beef. We shouldn't be getting this much for our lamb. And now 12 months later, uh, things are literally worthless. People are shooting and burying animals on their farm because they're not even worth trucking them to the abs. They will sell them at the abs, abattoir or the marketplace, and the cost of trucking them to the yards will outweigh the return that they will get 
so it's cheaper to shoot them on the farm and pile them up. Uh, and, and, you know, that's not true for all animals, but if you're going to sell an old mutton or a ram lamb or a store cow or something, you know, that's not a prime animal, they're, 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 they're worthless because the market's flooded. Everyone's, it's an oversupply problem because of the drought setting in and some other policy changes here in Australia. And these, a lot of these same personalities are online crying about how poor it is. And I was trying to get them to, you know, last 12 months ago, 18 months ago, when they're on the gravy train, I was trying to encourage them to sell direct and they're running their numbers go, why would I bother? All that extra effort, I'm only going to make an extra $20 a lamb. I'm saying, look ahead two years, the market's going to crash because it always does. It's up and down. It's the same as the housing market. It's the same as the stock market. It's the same as every other market. It's boom and bust. And when the good times are rolling, you need to be investing to make your business more defensible because the reality is all these commodity farmers are price takers. They, they, they have to buy the inputs at the price that's quoted and then they have to take whatever price for their crop at the end of the year. Uh, so they're gambling. A lot of them are gambling in, in a lot of ways and I'm not interested in that. I, we're price makers, not price takers. You know, it comes with its own set of challenges, but, you know, I've been in business long enough that I don't know, I don't, I, I don't have the appetite for putting 12 months of work in and then gambling my income. I'm curious, while the the huge boom and then the, the the huge crash, what was going on, I guess, on your end as you're doing direct to, to market? Was that really affecting your business as a whole? It's not really affecting me at all. Um, it, it's actually been great for me because animals, you know, when I purchased the bulk of my livestock, you know, sort of two years to 18 months ago, I bought my first lot of cows and I bought my sheep. I purchased everything at the absolute height of the market and I, and I paid dearly. Uh, for for animals and put and tied up a lot of cash flow and equity in livestock, and now that it's all tanked, I'm buying heaps more because I'm trying to dollar cost average my entry point. Uh, my my first ewes that I purchased, my female sheep for use for breeding, cost me two hundred and sixty dollars each. Uh, I just bought another fifty ewes, and they cost me twenty five dollars each. Now the quality is not quite the same. You know the ewes I got a, a I got a year ago or or bit of a better quality animal, uh, but they're not 10 times better, Ryan. You know, uh, they're not worth 10x. So, it, you know, I bought 40 head of cattle the other day, yeah. and I averaged 92 cents a kilo live weight. Again, you know, they're not the best animals. I went to the store sale and I bought the skinny cows and the bottle calves and, and things, but, you know, I was, I, was buying, I was buying 300 kilo heifers, you know, so heifers that are almost ready to join for 300 bucks. You know, so... For me, it's it's been it's been fantastic. There's a tiny bit of price pressure starting to come in because the butchers and the supermarkets are just starting to drop their prices a little bit because the pricing of the markets come down, but they're not dropping it much. You know, sheep's dropped, you know, a, a huge amount, and the supermarkets have come back seven percent in price. So it's really not affecting me that much. Hmm. So that's really interesting because I'm also really curious. There's just so much going on on your end. So you've got. I mean, the new land that you're just mentioning and, and potentially wanting to do weddings for that, you've got the butchery, which is where you're at currently, and just trying to continue to expand on the farm you've got with all the different types of animals. How do you go about strategizing and just, yeah, managing all of that? Well, look, I, you know, I'll be really transparent, and I would, I would not suggest people do what I do and have five, six different enterprises on their farm and spread themselves across that. 
Uh, I, I'm glad that I've done it because I now have a pretty good handle on what's involved and, and what it's like to raise broilers, to, to have a laying flock, to have sheep, cattle, pigs. Uh, but now Walpi Farm is at a real sort of crossroads moment where we, we need to, you know, tighten our belt and figure out what our hero product is and, and get really good at one thing and, and be, you know, put our eggs in that basket and market it and hit scale, um, hit economies of um, scale and, and make things more efficient and be able to pass that price uh, drop down to our consumer so we can really get some numbers on the ground. Uh, I don't know what that is because each each animal, each enterprise has a pros and cons. Um, but you know, I, I've got a lot of lists. I've got a lot of checklists. I've got a, a pretty tight schedule. We run a Slack group uh, where on our Slack page, for our, all our staff are in it, all the farm hands and the butchers, and my wife and I, and, and our web developer, and everyone's in the Slack group. Each enterprise and each property has its own channel. And there's constant communication. Like I'm always asking my staff to overshare with me. I, I, I would I would rather have too much information at my fingertips than not enough. Uh, but you know, it's it's for most people where they're at, the resources they have, the appetite for workload they have. I would think a hero product. Make broilers your hero product. Make beef your hero product. Whatever it is, and then have a have a value add hero product. So, um, if you, let's say beef is your hero product, have a value add hero product. So, do your rendered tallow, and then have a secondary product. Do your broilers or do your eggs that you can direct market to your beef customers and have that as a as a as a supplementary. Um, you know, having all four. You know, I love I love having everything on the farm, and you know, part of the reason we do it is because we eat it ourselves. We want this for our family. Uh, and our yeah. community, I, I don't think it's the right thing for most people. I, I don't think people can handle it. It's kind of a little transition, but on the topic just of family, and I know you said you have three little ones. Um, what's just been that experience been like raising a family on a farm? Because did you grow up on a farm? I didn't. No, I grew up in town. My parents purchased that 100-acre, 110-acre property uh, when I was about 15. And by the time they had a house in it, I moved out there and I lived with them for sort of three or four years. But I wasn't really present at home. You know, I had my license and I was, you know, I had a van. So I'd sleep sleep in my van in my mate's driveway and, and, and sleep out at the river and, you know, just cruise around a lot. And uh, if dad ever wanted help putting animals into the yards or something, I begrudge it, and I and and I I, I, I thought it was a, a you know I was happy to help my father, but it wasn't the work I picked for myself. I had I had no interest in that, so didn't really have that experience, and still don't to a degree. Like I spend a lot of time on the farm farming, but I still live in town with my children. We haven't had the opportunity to to actually you know raise our kids, which is a month away. Today's October twenty seventh. We settle on November twenty seventh, and our farm our family is going to be out there, uh, you know, and and. My eldest will remember town life. He's six, Otto, but my youngest two won't. You know, they'll everything they'll know will be farm life, which I'm excited about. You know, I I've always wanted kids ever since high school. I wanted kids, and I knew I wanted a bunch of kids. And I'd think about how I would raise my children and what my family would be like, and how we would all sit at the dinner table and have dinner together without the TV on, and we talk with each other, and you know, we say grace for our meals. And I it wasn't. Till later on in life that I realized that wasn't really a normal thing for teenage boys to be thinking about. I spent more time thinking about my future kids than my future wife. Uh, I'm very family centric and, and, and I love breeding. 
and uh, I want to have heaps of kids, you know, God willing, whatever my wife can handle. It's a bit of an awkward thing to talk about because my, my wife gets a bit uh, embarrassed like when I talk like this. But, you know, it's, it's a huge undertaking for women. They are sacrificing uh, their body and their health and their time and their mobility and their self um, and raising these children. And it's just the most beautiful gift. And she's given me three and I'm eternally grateful. And if that's it, that's fine. If I get another five, I'd be absolutely stoked. <laughs> that's funny. But that's also a great point about the dinner table because the farm I was on, we every day for lunch, one of the, the farm hands would go in and cook every lunch for everybody. And then for dinner, um, it was usually the wife and then we'd all be at the dinner table. I just remember the first night I was there and no TV, no technology. The kids are running around arguing, just mess is going on, but we're still having that awesome conversation. And I reflected, and that was the first time I experienced that in probably 10 plus years and how valuable that is. And so I can only imagine once you're actually on the farm with your family in the next month, uh, just moving forward with all that. It's, it's so awesome. And we've, yeah, we've really lost that, especially with technology and just, I mean, in America, it's also just very hard to have family together at, at dinner table now because of cost of living and, and jobs and all, all of that jazz. Uh, so it's definitely, I guess, a lost art per se, besides on the farm. And then also just adding to the, the level of the fact that not only are you eating at the dinner table, you're eating the food that you raised. And that just adds a whole level of meaning too, because again, just, I remember being out in the fields, picking all the produce and then processing the chickens and, and just eating all of that. Uh, it's, the, the feeling is pretty indescribable. I, I don't know how to describe it other than it's the most connected I've ever felt to the world and the natural world. Yeah, look, we, we love it and, that, and that's why we do it. You know, it's, it's hard to switch off. I'm, a, I'm horrible for it. I've always got my phone in my hand. My wife's always got to remind me, Jake, we're at the dinner table. Put your phone down. Yes, dear. Sorry, dear. Um, but, you know, being present with your, with your children and your family, you have to take stock every now and then and, and, and realize, you know, why do you do it? Maybe a lot of people don't know why they do it. You know, I am, um, I want to build an estate and, and I don't want to build an estate for the sake of the buildings. I want to build an estate uh, in, in, the, in the sense of a family unit. And, you know, I've got a pretty tight family. Like my grandparents still live here in town. My grandpa does deliveries for me and helps on the farm and you know, we're very active in, in each other's life, but you know, I still think that there's a way to like. I look at things um, like the Kennedys, the American political family, and you know, whatever your opinion of the Kennedys is, is, is here nor there. But uh, I recently saw a video with uh, the current presidential candidate at his uh, beachside home. You know, beautiful big villas. and it was like a it was like a uh, golf green, but there was three or four enormous properties. And the Kennedys, as a family, have lived in that estate for something like four generations. And it, it's, you know, I don't know how it's set up, but they've obviously, I'm sure they've all got their differences and I'm sure the family squabbles, but they're all on the same block together and it keeps getting handed down and it, it doesn't, at the surface, it doesn't look like it's been blown up by um, wheels being contested and divorces and, and, you know, all this, somehow they've held it together. And I think that's an absolute beautiful thing. You know, we, there's so much conversation in the media and in, in, in our world 
about how hard it is to to earn a living and, and minimum wage and cost of living and commute time and all this sort of stuff. But the divorce rates half and every time you get divorced, you're halving all your assets and, and you're halving your earning potential like you know, the worst financial thing you'll ever do in your life is, is split up from your spouse. You know, I'm, I'm pro-family. It's better for everyone. I agree. So the last topic I have on topic of economics, because I know you're a big Bitcoiner yourself. I was curious, um, yeah, what was the catalyst to, to you being all in for Bitcoin? And especially because I know you accept that for your business and that's that's a huge leap. Because rather than accepting fiat, um, yeah, this is just brand new technology and you're accepting that for your business. So I was curious to just hear more on that. I've always, I've always tried to, I guess, put a bit of time into understanding economics, um, listening to guys like Thomas Sowell, uh, Milton Friedman, uh, Peter Schiff. You know, I, I, I tried yeah, I'm a, I'm a businessman. I'm not an investor. I'm not a speculator. I, 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 you know, I'm trying to buy for one, sell for two. I'm a merchant. I, I look at myself as a trader sitting on a rug, you know, swapping goods with someone else, just trying to do value for value. Uh, but I became very interested in gold. I'm looking at our money going, they just print more of it. It's all when they lend, when the banks lend money, they create money to lend money. You know, money is debt. I'm looking at it all going, this is very confusing. Uh, this sort of, uh, doesn't seem to be great to me and, and listening to guys like Peter Schiff um, and, and researching the gold standard, it looked to me that money had never been so good as to when it was as hard as gold. And during COVID, when it was all lockdowns and you couldn't go to the supermarket and, and everything was shut, and you weren't allowed out of your house, you know, we, we sort of really copped it here in Australia. A good friend of mine and I were, were messaging a lot and, you know, we were bored for lack of a better word. We couldn't do all the things we used to do. So we both decided that we'd put up a few hundred bucks and get onto one of the, um, you know, day trading apps and we'd trade uh, shit coins and see who could make the most money just just trying to get on pump and dumps. And, you know, I made a few thousand dollars on Dogecoin and he made a few thousand dollars on this one and we were shorting them and it was just gambling. It was unadulterated gambling. We, we knew that these things had no inherent value. But it became clear to me as we were researching these pump and dumps that not all these cryptocurrencies were equal. And and it was obvious that Bitcoin uh, was, was a cut above the rest. But I still never got into it at that stage. You know, I made a few thousand bucks and I pulled all my money out or whatever I did with it, I don't remember. And then a few months later in the butchery here, uh, I was doing a job custom processing for a guy out of Melbourne and I was packing his orders for him and one of the columns had payment type. And it was fiat, fiat, uh, Bitcoin, trade, whatever, it was BTC. And I called him and I'm like, are you accepting Bitcoin for some of this meat? He said, yeah, absolutely. Like, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to set up a direct-to-consumer uh, Bitcoin model. I'm like, tell me more about of it. And about it. And that was my orange pilling. You know, we had this 40-minute conversation and I got off the phone with more questions than I previously had because it's not easy to explain to people. You, you know, you've got to mine the blocks, you've got nodes, you've got sats, which are a part of a Bitcoin. Um, you know, you've got the lightning network. There's so much going on, but I knew there was something in it and, yeah. it, and it made a lot of sense to me. And I, you know, I went off and listened to some podcasts and tried to get educated. And I just thought I've got to be involved in this. And, and when I started getting involved, 
you know, the, the, the Bitcoin community and the, and the people that are in, that are in it, you know, are a standout to me. I, I just, I love the crowd. I love the technology, but I love the people. Uh, and so we, when I got my website going, because my website's only about six months old, you know, prior to then, if you wanted to buy something, you had to message me on Facebook or email me, basically. There was no interface apart from my, my 24 cent butchery, uh, members only butchery behind me. But the website got going and I said to web developers, can you make it so I can accept Bitcoin? And they're like, are you sure? I said, yes. They said, any other cryptocurrencies? I said, absolutely not. You know, just Bitcoin, thank you. And we and we plugged it <laughs> in. So I get multiple orders a week where people, you can just go on my website, walkybarm.com.au, go to the order now page, add a 10 kilo beef box for, you know, 300 bucks, whatever it is to your shopping cart, $400. Uh, and and um, on the exit, you can select uh, fiat or Bitcoin. And then the QR code comes up and, and you send it through on chain and that's that. And it's great. It's working really well. Uh, I'm getting quite a few sales. So I'm probably getting the right amount. If I got any more than I would do, I'd, I'd, I'd have to probably liquidate more than I'd like. So at the moment, I'm using it as a bit of a treasury. And a lot of people are saying, you know, what do you do with it? Well, you know, sometimes I sell it because I need fiat to pay bills. Uh, I do have some expenses. I can pay Bitcoin. Uh, I won't get into what they are because that has, I guess, other implications for other parties. I don't know what they, what they do with how they get it. Um, but at the, at the same time, it's, it's, a, it's a treasury, you know, a lot of businesses have assets that they, that they stockpile, you know, for, for, for whatever reason. So that's what we're, we're doing. And, and you know, it, at the moment, it's, it's working really well. That was going to be my, you answered my next question, because I, I have Bitcoin for my business too. And I've had only a couple orders, but I plan to just keep it as a treasury, the same as yourself. With that being said, is there, I guess before we wrap it any, it all up is there any last comments or any topics that you'd like to talk about look i think we've i think we've covered all the fun stuff all the fun stuff really did animal welfare we did economics you know um parting words is we 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 buy the future we deserve <laughs> vote with your dollar i like that a lot I and like you know that a lot. one of the well, one of the Jacob. things people talk about it and i don't i think we'll be preaching to the converted with your podcast ryan but I come up against all the time the cost of eating a high protein, you know, organic meat diet. And my son and I were in Sydney the other day, went up to Sydney to visit Dr. Jalal Khan. Uh, Otto's getting some mouth work done. And we got up and we had breakfast and we had two uh, soft boiled eggs each. And we were full for breakfast and we came home. And if you bought my eggs, my eggs are top of the tree. You, you can barely find eggs more expensive than mine here in Australia. They're $12 a dozen. You know, maybe you'll get some biodynamic certified, whatever, for thirteen fifty or something. My eggs are right up there. Uh, and two eggs for breakfast each was 4 bucks. You know, who's complaining about a $4 breakfast to feed two people, get you through to lunchtime? I hear people complaining about the uh, cost of eggs in the supermarket, but the drive through at McDonald's, which is open 24-7, is always backed up around the block. What's your, what's what's a I don't know what a McMuffin with a hash browns worth in the morning, but I guarantee you it's more than two dollars. Agreed, and it always goes back to just the conversation of. I mean, this is why I love Bitcoin. It forces you to think long term. Uh, I mean, it just completely ch changes the time preference because you might be buying the cheaper quality food, but you're not thinking long term of just the consequences that you could t potentially be facing from making those decisions. Because then you still might feel like crap and then you have to go to the doctor and then they obviously just band-aid everything and those are come at a cost. 
rather than really thinking about your health and what you're eating and paying up front because it is more expensive to buy these products, but it's more nutrient dense going back to that. And then it literally makes you feel better. And in the long run, you'll be much more healthy. So you're not paying for these extra costs. Um, yeah, it's always just how we view all of this. Well, you're, you're absolutely right. You know, you're, you're investing in your future health. You're trying to protect yourself from medical expenses, time sick on the couch, premature death, disease, all this sort of stuff. Um, but, you know, I, I don't even think for 90% of the population, we even need to get to that point of the argument. The fact that all the bars and all the clubs have people spilling out of them, they're so full and they're selling cocktails for $23 a piece, and then people complain about the price of grass-fed beef. You know, it's just an absolute nonsense. You could buy a day's worth of protein for the price of one cocktail. You know, people spend $300 on a pair of designer jeans and they've already got degenerate holes ripped in the knees. You know, like... Yeah. My, wife, my wife was recently the bridesmaid, one of the bridesmaids to my sister. My sister got married two weeks ago. So she went and got her nails. All the bridesmaids had to go and get their fingers and their nails done as a group. So they all matched, right? It's the first time my wife's ever gone and got her nails done. $85 to get her fingers and her nails done. <laughs> and she's sitting in there and all these women, as she's listening to the chit chat of all these women that are in there every fortnight, spending almost $100 a fortnight. So you can do your nails at home. You can buy a bottle of nail, you know, and I know it's all not the yeah. same, and, but it's a priority thing. $12 for a dozen organic yep. eggs or, you, or, or you know, that'll, that'll last you a week. It's just, it's just beyond belief. Like our priorities are completely stuffed. And, um, you know, I've, I've got a lot of customers that make enormous sacrifices within their families to keep my protein in their fridge and freezer. And I'm, I'm, I'm extremely grateful and I'm very proud of them for priorities they have in their life and when i see that you know i go out of my way to offer combos and bulk discounts and and, and and different things to these families because i know you know how how much they value it so it makes me more motivated to you know help it help make it accessible for them that's awesome well to all the listeners then i guess where can they find you at yeah i'm on x twitter at jake Walkie, w-o-l-k-i Walkie farms on facebook instagram our website i said the url before you know, I'm very accessible. If people want to DM me or call me or email me, I'm I'm I'm, I'm pretty much an open book. If people want to get in touch, um, yeah, not hard to find. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Jacob, for joining. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. All right, have a good one, y'all.